I found out last night that we had the option to be in a beer advent calendar, and Pete did not get us <gasps> beer advent calendar. Peter. Yes. So I I expressed that next year the organizers should email me because uh-huh. I will get us that. Because Pete is not looking out for you. You're listening to Love Ya, your guided tour through the wide, wide world of streaming rom-coms and teen cinema. I am one of your co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, library manager and, oh, who knows these days? Identity (laughs) crisis. Guinea pig photographer. (laughs) And I am here today, as always, with my co-host. I'm Maren Hagman, adult services librarian. And today, I don't know, person who managed to do their laundry. I'm I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Thank you. Today, yesterday and today, I actually made myself work out for the first time in several weeks. And I hurt all over right now. But I'm also very proud of myself because Mm. it had been a minute. I'm proud of you, too. That is, I have yet to take that plunge and I am not excited about it. Every once in a while, it, it helps with my just sort of general, like, um, what's the word? Dissociation, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, doing something physical helps me, like, ground myself in my actual body, which these days is something that I have difficulty with. Yeah. Um. But no, I am legitimately proud of you for doing your laundry. Thank you. Some of those some of those like day-to-day tasks get really hard when they're all you have to do. Oh yeah. And for me laundry has always been one of those things I I put off and I just hate doing. Mm-hmm. Um so it's like always one of those small things that's like should not be such a battle but is a little battle and I always think about like the 40-hour work week was not designed for a person to do both that and all of these around the house tasks. Like, thanks, uh, capitalism. So, right? Like, I have to go to work for 40 hours a week and also go grocery shopping and also feed myself and my husband and also, like, keep the house in order and keep my pets alive. It's like, at, at what point? Right. <laughs> right. And now we have to do all of that while we're on constant, constant, well, we're under constant low-grade trauma just all the time. Yep. Because capitalism. Right. Anyway. Anyway. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of capitalism, uh, today we are going to be talking about the 2020 Hulu original Happiest Season, uh, written and directed by Clea Duvall. Happiest Season stars Kristen Stewart as Abby, Mackenzie Davis as Harper, Mary Steenburgen as Tipper, Harper's mother, Victor Garber as Ted, Harper's father, Allison Brie as Sloane and Mary Holland as Jane, Harper's sisters, Dan Levy as John, Abby's best friend, uh, Aubrey Plaza as Riley, Harper's ex-girlfriend, and then a bunch of other people. 
Uh, Happiest Season is about Abby and Harper, uh, two women who are in a loving relationship um, on one a loving and committed relationship on a day nearing Christmas in a fit of drunken festivity. Harper invites Abby home with her for Christmas and Abby accepts on the way to Harper's parents' house. She reveals to Abby that not only has she not come out to her parents, but that she has told them that Abby is her straight roommate. And could she please not give away the fact that they are, uh, gay and also together because she is afraid that her uptight, politically motivated, wealthy white family will uh, disown her. What follows is five days of whimsical and also vaguely domestic abusive shenanigans that come from the fact that two people have to lie to a bunch of people about their fundamental relationship to each other. Um, Abby gets to meet Riley, Harper's high school ex-girlfriend, who she has way more chemistry with than Harper. Uh, at one point, she goes shopping at the mall with Sloane and is bizarrely accused of shoplifting and branded as a miscreant by the rest of Harper's family. Uh, and the sort of climactic moment of the movie happens at a party where, due to a string of unfortunate circumstances sloan realizes that harper and abby are gay and before she can out that well she outs them to her parents abby leaves has a sort of reconciliatory moment with her friend john who comes up to see if she's okay um harper comes out to her family for real and then by Christmas morning, everyone has reconciled. Um, in amongst that is also the subplot of Ted looking for funding for his mayoral campaign, uh, which gets tanked by the fact that Harper is gay. And we find out also that Sloan is getting a divorce. Uh, and also Jane is the best at all times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the main takeaway of this movie. <laughs> so people have been talking about this movie a lot online. And I will say, I'm glad that I watched this about a week ago. Because I think sitting with it for a bit, I like it more as I think about it and as I read other people's takeaways and analyses of it. Okay. There are... There are two things that I would have... Actually, before I get into that, what did you think of this movie? Um, well, judging by your summary, my guess would be that I enjoyed it more than you. <laughs> um, I think that... Yeah, I thought it was... Um, I I think my overarching takeaway, kind of bleeding into... Or piggybacking off what I said earlier, I, I think where this movie struggles is that its supporting cast is just so much more charming um, then it's leads. And I think that, it, I mean, I think Kristen Stewart does a fine job. I think Mackenzie Davis is a little bit of a non-entity. Um, and so I, I think this movie just kind of gets overwhelmed in that its supporting cast is so charming, um, that it 
loses the momentum of its main plot line. Um, as I, as I think where this movie struggled, I think too, I was thinking a lot about films where the story is not about a couple getting together, but about an established couple going through something. And there aren't many in the rom-com genre. And, and so I think that, um, for me, it was just interesting that that was like the way it was structured. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of the supporting cast was charming. Um, I think that um, there was some good character development. Yeah, those were kind of my big takeaways. So initially, when I first watched it, I, like much of the internet, had the initial reaction of Abby has much better chemistry with Riley and Harper is being horrible why are they like at the end i don't feel like abby has a whole lot of reason to stay with harper i'm just gonna give myself a little pat on the back because as pete and i were walking to our bonfire yesterday this was exactly what i said you would say okay here's the thing thing. i don't hate that they stay together okay okay great I think the movie was really hampered by the fact that it's a Christmas movie. Oh, okay. Because I think what would have improved it and what would have made everyone feel a lot better about it is if we have that climate, like everything up to the party on Christmas Eve stays exactly the same. Okay. But then we push the reconciliation and we push Harper's family coming around to New Year's Eve. Oh, okay. Give it a little more room to breathe. Because one of the things that I, one of the issues that I had with it, and this was always going to be an issue because it's a Christmas movie, was it felt like everyone got on board. Like Harper is so afraid of what her father, like what her family is going to say. And we are given this vision of them as like this, you know, we are, we are told and shown through how she and Jane and Sloan all behave that like, they had a legitimate fear of not living up to their parents and probably mostly their father's expectations of how their family should be and should appear that to resolve that fear in like two hours didn't feel satisfying to me. So I would, my one pushback there and I'm not, I'm not, I I think you're totally right. I think there could have definitely been some more breathing room there and that would have felt authentic. But where the reason I think that works is I think the way it is set up is that it's really a house of cards of, it's not just their parents have placed this like incredible importance on like their image to just their children is that they've done it to all themselves. So I I did kind of like the idea that like once the cat is out of the bag, like all this tension gets released and they can just all finally be themselves. I felt like they were just, the movie did establish that they were all in that together. It wasn't just that, that the, okay, this is how I'm trying to say this better, that like the parents themselves put this, idealize like need to fulfill an idealized image on themselves not just their children um so i i think it was this idea that like 
they were all doing that to both each other and themselves. And then once that got released, it made sense to me that that would all fall like a house of cards. Um, I do think we could have seen them marinate with that a little more. Like, I don't think... I don't think well, that Christmas morning scene, like you said, that did, that did seem a little abrupt. But I, I did like that the take was not that their parents were so... I, I liked the take was that their parents were in it too. That, like, their parents felt that pressure too. I did too. Yeah. I just, I just think about how, and like I said, because of the format of this movie, this is not how things were going to go. And I think that based on what kind of movie this was and what it was doing, I, I actually end up feeling pretty good about what we got but I, I think, like, just just consider, like, a montage of two weeks where, like, Victor Garber has to sit and look wistfully out his window and Mary Steenburgen has to, like, maybe try and talk to her daughters, but at the, at the last minute, like, turn away and deal with, like, I, I think they could have done it in a, just a couple of minutes and the feeling of having some time pass for processing would have made Abby's forgiveness and acceptance of what Harper put her through because that was also like a lot. Like I did not blame Abby for being like, you have asked me to deal with a lot and I just can't deal with it right now. So I have to go away and think about what this all means because of how you've treated me for these five days. Okay, so um, I think this actually okay. I'm I'm about to kind of leading off your point here. I I think I can make this point on both sides. I think that part of the, one one thing you're getting at here is that both the title card sequence of the opening of the movie and actually the end credit sequence do a lot of that work. And so I think one thing that could have helped. Is, so the title card sequence is supposed to be, it's like a little cartoon, basically, of Abby and Harper meeting. And then yeah, the of, end, their, like, of their like first eight months, or however long they've been together. Right, right. And then the end sequence is actually, it's like Mary Steenburgen's purported Instagram feed. And it shows like all the things the family's doing together. It shows her learning how to play karate, which she expresses is something she wants to do. It has like more author pictures kind of piggybacking off the last scene of Jane being an author. Like it, it has basically a photo montage. Um, and, and so I think if they had actually incorporated that into the film, um, I think we would have gotten that breathing room you're looking for. Cause I do remember thinking like, obviously we've been told and we get to see for one scene like, I do believe that Abby would go back to Harper because we we did in the beginning have at least a, a glimpse of that foundation. And I could totally see coming from the framework of we have had a healthy and committed relationship for a year. This is like something is up here. Like this is an aberration in an otherwise like solid relationship. Um, And I think that if we and in the same token, like at the end, like we're, I think we're we're missing that step uh, to the flash f 
to the flash forward where it's like, oh, okay, like they're communicating better as a family. They're like closer, like all this stuff is out in the open now. I I agree with you about the, the opening montage because I do think, I think people may have been feeling a little confused. We, we definitely get dropped in sort of in media res in their relationship. So we just kind of have what, Harper and Abby tell us to go by about like the strength and the um like how how good and strong their relationship has been up to this point we don't really get to see any of that except Um, for I mean we do get a glimpse in that opening scene where they go um like look at Christmas lights and stuff although what on earth were they doing climbing a roof that whole sequence I was just like I I definitely I like I had to like put my like hand over my eyes and just be like oh my god like like there's really a moment here where Case Stu is hanging off a roof like nope (laughs) um that was very traditional Christmas movie shenanigans though oh totally um but the Mary Steenburgen's Instagram feed at the end which was extremely cute and I did enjoy a lot is all aftermath. Yeah, like it is. It is how the family is learning to proceed now that they have all agreed to proceed. See, and, and I, I think, think. Oh, okay. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say what I wanted was the like what I wanted was them dealing with it. Was them like deciding that they were going to proceed? Well, I think they do in that scene. I mean, I I think they have a pretty explicit conversation about. Like, right, and I'm I'm saying that like we get that we just get it sped up. Sure, and I I think it would have been more effective if they had spread that out over a couple of weeks and then given us like a celebratory New Year's Eve yeah reconciliation, which again by design was not going to happen. Yeah, I mean I can see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean I guess I'm just thinking like yeah if we had had another one of those like even a Mary Steenburgen Instagram montage of like little moments. Mm-hmm. Where you see them, like, building up to, okay, we're going to communicate as a family. Um, the other thing that I think would have helped this movie a lot was a sense of specificity. Be- it really bothered me that we don't know where Harper's hometown is. We don't know what city her dad is running for mayor in, we don't even really know that they're conservative or like Republican. We are sort of given that to understand. We are sort of given to understand that. But I think this movie would have benefited a lot from like a really solid place in time and like more details on. I I wanted, I wanted it to be specific that Harper's family was like old East coast white, Republican money because I think that that is what we are leading to but because it's so vague I didn't really feel like it was built enough into the movie sure I mean I think I so the this I can't remember if they had establishing shots or there were just like some landmarks built in or like so I knew that presumably the city they're in is Pittsburgh um so I knew, like, I think I just kind of made that up for myself as we went along. I was like, oh, I assume they're somewhere in small town Pennsylvania. But you're right in that, like, if it is meant to be Pennsylvania, like, Pennsylvania as a state, like, is a very 
There's a, there's, Eastern Pennsylvania is very different than Western Pennsylvania. Northern Pennsylvania is very different than Southern Pennsylvania. Like, Pennsylvania is a state with a lot of things going on, you know, a lot of very different parts to it. Um, so yeah, I think it would have been helpful to have, and I, as someone who grew up in a rural area, I, I will admit, I really appreciated that scene we had at the bar with, um, Abby and what's Aubrey Plaza's name again? Riley? Riley? Yeah, Riley. Um, and I really appreciate there's a scene where they, you know, go, Riley helps Abby shop for the white, uh, gift, white elephant gift exchange and they go to a bar and there's a little drag show. And I, I love moments like that when they're portrayed in a rural setting because I think so often, like, rural... America gets portrayed in very monolithic ways and I think kind of what you're getting at like as someone who grew up in rural America like the area I grew up in was very specific and um yeah and I I think yeah lending some of that like color um that I I saw a glimpse of in that scene where they went to the drag bar um but yeah I I think you're right on I think we needed a little more like yep we are in Eastern Pennsylvania, like, between Pittsburgh and Philly, oh, we're all the way down in, like, West Virginia, you know, or Kentucky, whatever. I'm trying to, like, picture the... Pennsylvania's a big state. I'm trying to <laughs> picture the... I, I also think that specifying more of those details would have helped resolve some of the kind of frustratingly vague class dynamics that this movie has going on. Mm-hmm. Um, because... I got the feeling that part of the tension between Abby and Harper's family is how wealthy they are. But mm. because that is not kind of specific in any way, I just sort of, again, I found myself making a lot of guesses about why things were the way they were in this movie. And I would have appreciated more guidance. Fair. I think I understood. Well, I, I, I think that, what the movie probably thinks is the specificity it's given is that the reason they're so particularly at this moment invested in their appearance as a family is because he's running for mayor. And so I think it just tried to kind of sidestep that by saying, well, it's because he's running for mayor. Like he has to have this certain image um, as a political candidate and instead of, trying to have us believe that it um you know is based in just money i think that we're we're supposed to see it because too they mentioned that like harper was all prepared to come out to her family before he told her that this campaign was starting so so we're really well, led to believe we, that this we campaign... know that harper says that <laughs> uh, i also I also just want to say that, again, this was never going to happen because of the fundamental nature of the movie. And I understand that, and that's fine. But I also don't think there's anything wrong with having a movie that results in an adult character saying, I need something different from this relationship than what you are giving me. Um, when, when Abby says... I want to be with somebody who is out like that is a valid thing for Abby to want. 
And I don't know that I necessarily appreciated the fact that the movie was like, now you, now I, like you, meaning me as the viewer, must forgive Harper because in this catastrophic moment of emotional turmoil, she finally did the thing that she had told Abby she had already done. I, I would push back. I do think that the movie feels that Abby's desire to be with someone who is out is valid. I, I think what John, I think that is, I, I love that scene with, and I'm sure we'll get into talking about how Dan Levy, um, Aubrey Plaza and who plays Jane, um, how they steal Mary, Mary, Holland. Mary Holland, how they steal the show. But for me, part of Dan Levy's stealing the show is I, I think that that speech he gives Abby about coming out is so, like, it's so beautiful in terms of both validating that it's totally fair that she wants to be with someone who is out and also saying it makes total sense that Harper is scared. Um, I, I think the movie actually juggled that really well, um, that... I, I think it gave us that moment of like Abby's ready to go and and Harper Harper's reaction of when push comes to shove, I, I love Abby more than I am scared of losing my family. Um I and, uh, yeah. And this is another this is another moment where I really think that I would be one hundred like I would have no reservations with any of that if it had happened over the course of more than like four hours. <laughs> fair, <laughs> fair. Yeah, the compressed timeline. Yeah, it, it, that could have used a little more breathing room to, for sure. But I, I, I think that it, um, I think that it did a really good job of while not making Harper a villain, you know, definitely showing how her choices are hurting Abby, and and definitely, and 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 that goes circles back around to like I do think we need. Like, a montage of the meeting, or we do need five more minutes of their relationship at the beginning for us to to really get a sense here of this is someone, like, Harper is someone going through a rough time and has been faced with something that she sees as an impossible choice between, you know, being scared of coming out to her family and, and wanting to be with Abby. And I, I think that... If we had had a little more glimpse into how functional their relationship is outside of this all coming to a head, I I think that would ground that more. And it made me think about, weirdly, of all films, and I know I mentioned earlier, I was really trying to rack my brain for other films where the tension is not... Will the hear or will the main characters get together? The tension is, you know, they're already together and they are encountering something. Um... And it's not a fake relationship trope. Ugh. And and the only one I could really think of is the five-year engagement um, with Jason Siegel and Emily Blunt. I'm sure there are others, but that's really the only one I could think of. And I, and I, I, it occurred to me that that is probably part of why pulling something off like that is so hard. And, I, and there's a similar moment in the five-year engagement where it's like, okay, this relationship has run its course, like, we are done. But the movie spent, you know, some time building it up. I don't know. It encounters some of the same difficulties is what I'm getting at. So I I, I think it is also just part of the challenge of both structuring a story around Christmas and structuring a rom-com where it's not leading to 
the two initially getting together. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that, um, it, it, I think it would have been fine if we had had Abby leave and we had had, you know, a montage of Harper, you know, coming out to her parents, her, her family, like building themselves back up together. Harper, like, you know, establishing that she she did choose to come out and put Abby over her fear. And, like, I, I think you're right. I think we could have, in real life, that kind of emotional turmoil would not be solved by one conversation. And I think that that is a very good point to remember, is that a holiday romance movie is sort of fundamentally not reality. Right. Not, not, not reality, but like fundamentally kind of fantasy based. Like this is a, this is a fantasy that we're watching. Um, right. And like how much more unrealistic is that than, you know, George Bailey meeting an angel? Like, right. <laughs> oh my God. You have to, you have to watch a New York Christmas. Okay. Story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah, you have to watch it, and you, then you have to tell me immediately okay, about okay. it. <laughs> um, but yes, let us let us now discuss the supporting cast for this oh. movie because I I think unequivocally, regardless of how we feel about story, plot, or pacing, the acting in this movie is is pretty solid oh, and yeah. the acting by the supporting characters with the single exception of, um, Oh shoot. Alison Brie. Yes. Alison Brie, who I don't think was given good enough material for the fact that she's Alison Brie. Um, right. The secondary characters in this movie are fantastic. Oh, I just want a whole movie about Jane. Like, I just want Jane's story. Like, can there and be a sequel about so Jane? Jane <laughs> yes, Jane plays the youngest sister who is a uh, is a an oddball and has one of the most resonant moments for me at the end of the movie when Mary Steenburgen and Victor Garber realize that Jane grew up okay because they gave up on Jane. <laughs> Like she was allowed to grow into her, like grow up into her truest self because they did not understand her. And so she did not end up being part of the competition for her parents' affections, which is such a bleakly depressing thing to say. But also Jane is living her best life. Well, and I think it's such an interesting statement about like how the four other members of her family have hidden themselves so successfully to each other and, and because Jane just kind of got opted out of that like she just has is strong in who she is and just wants to be included and um yeah it, it is a very bleak parenting message that like the 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 fact that they did not put this pressure on her because they felt like it wouldn't do any, you know, it wouldn't push her to do what they wanted her to do. 
And so they just, like, gave her less attention. Like, yeah, that is, that is pretty bleak. Um, yeah. I deeply love, so she, one of the running jokes throughout the movie is this highly absurd fantasy sci-fi novel that she is writing that, frankly, I would probably read the heck out of. Um, but by the end of it, Dan Levy's character has become her literary agent and she ends the movie as a best-selling author. <laughs> what was her line? Like, world building takes a lot of time or something? Yes, because she's been working on it for a very long time. Um, but yeah, when Victor Garber announces that like he's put most of their money into his campaign and then when the campaign fails... He's like, what will we do? And Jane is like, it's okay. When I become a best-selling author, I'll take care of everybody. And then she does. Oh, it's so great. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jane. Jane. But, I just. I will say, one of the issues that I had with the movie early on is that they're very mean to Jane. Yeah, and it. I understood it in that, I will admit, it took me a little while to get on board with Jane. Um, not that I, so, uh, listeners, you can know that I, I definitely texted Martha, like, why is Mary Steenburgen being so mean? So mean. <laughs> and I feel like I, uh, I definitely felt that a lot. And it, it, in the beginning, it took me a while to just be like, wait, like, what is going on here with Jane? Like, I just don't, like, she's really saying some oddball things and like, they're responding to it really meanly. Like, this is just, what have we walked into here? And then, yeah, it became increasingly clear that, like, this, you know, aura of competition has, it, it, it became increasingly clear that, like, Jane's oddballness was rooted in, like, just wanting to be who she was and being included. Um, whether well, everyone else's reactions to her was rooted in like dismissing her. Um, but I did, it took me a, a little bit, it took me a couple scenes to kind of grasp onto that dynamic and be like, what the, what is happening here? Um, and yes, then we have Dan Levy who plays John, who I think was in, like he, he flits into the movie periodically to give us all a laugh injection and deliver some hard truth bombs to Abby and then flits <laughs> away. And I thought it was perfect. Oh, so good. And then I really did appreciate that he does come. So he comes in person at the end. And I think that was such a great move of, Oh yes. Um, you know, having him like building in the little doses. And then at the end, he's like there for, um, the main action <laughs> yes um and yes i did tear up a little bit when he comes to rescue her yeah because he he hears the desperation in abby's voice and is like nope i'm coming to save you oh so good and he's just like all right get your stuff let's go like oh that was so sweet. Um, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm trying to tease out too, like how much of my reaction. So, Martha, did you ever watch Alias? Were you an Alias person? I feel like we've I talked was not. About this. I was not an Alias person. Okay. So 
it was very so Victor Garber is one of the main characters in Alias and in his whole character arc on Alias is that he starts out as very like repressed and very um like not supportive of his daughter or like very not strange but not close to his daughter and like over the course of the show becomes like much more in touch with his feelings and anyway um but i i i show for me and i don't know if you have this too with different actors we're just like they're iconically one role to you yes yes um, yes it's why i cannot get on board with bradley cooper no matter what fair. i can't do it what what do you he will, see him he was always going to be the guy from the hangover oh that's fair and see for me my first bradley cooper exposure was alias so for me he started i, I was probably lucky that I saw him as Will Tippin before The Hangover because um, he plays a very different character on Alias. Well, yes, because acting. But yeah. even so, anytime I see him in a movie, I'm like, I don't, I don't trust you. <laughs> totally fair. Um, oh, but- no, it's not The Hangover. It's oh. um, Wedding Crashers. Oh, he also plays a not great character. I feel like that was a little typecasting there because I feel like his character on the hang <laughs> in the Hangover is pretty similar. Yes, but yeah, that's where I go. For, that's, um... that's fair. So I think I have that with Victor Garber as as Jack Bristow and Alias, and so I'm just like, no, but why is Spy Dad being so mean? Like Spy Dad, I thought we went through <laughs> this. Like you. <laughs> You learn to feel I your we were feelings. Past this. <laughs> yeah. You learn to feel your feelings. Like, come on, man. <laughs> anyway, so I did have to like mediate like how much of my reaction to Victor Garber in this movie was like not rooted in his character, just being like invested in appearances and in this political campaign, and how much of it was rooted in like. But why is Spy Dad acting that way? <laughs> and any other thought? Actually, I, I do have one other thought okay. about this. And I, I want to see if you agree. Okay. Um, one of the um one of the predominant issues that I have seen brought up in reviews, um is that this movie feels like a 2006 rom-com that just happened to get released into in 2020. And that a lot of the and this was specific I think to how it handles the queer element of mm-hmm. it. Mhm. Um but also just like the feeling of the a lot of these shenanigans are due to the fact that nobody talks to each other um the sort of bait and switch feeling um to do i'm trying to find a specific well i think what you're getting at here is that like it is i i oh. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And just it's it's insistence on um, maintaining sort of a heteronormative view of love and relationships, like the fact that Abby is like, 
I want to ask for her dad's blessing, even while even while Dan Levy is like critiquing that. That is still kind of the that is still the trajectory we are on. And after meeting Harper's family and seeing how she grew up, like it is not a huge jump to assume that that is what she also like would appreciate. She comes from a fairly traditional upbringing, um, but just that it it's it hangs on these kind of old, like not old, stale, I guess, romantic tropes. And like I said, this is a, this is a critique that I have seen mostly from the queer community Yeah, as a, as a facet of the fact that so frequently in order for queer romances to be palatable and marketable to the popular culture, they have to kind of still resolve within this heteronormative frame. Yeah, I mean, I I do remember thinking, huh, this movie would, you know, make more sense in 2010. Um, and, And I think that goes back to, like, the specificity you're talking about of, like, we we are not... We are not given the specificity of, like, the community that Harper grew up in to, like, understand... Um, yeah, cause this, yeah, cause it, it does seem to hinge on some tropes that feel very aughts, early 2010s. Um, can I read you, can I read you a quick sure. excerpt? So this is from an article, this is an opinion piece that was published on cosmopolitan.com called I'm Tired of Waiting for the Queer Rom-Coms We Actually Deserve, um, by Leah Johnson. And the excerpt I would like to read. Oh, where did it go? Um, Okay. As a queer woman, I've spent much of my life engaging with traditional straight-centric romantic comedies and have longed for a movie that lived up to the promises Happiest Season made. Queer women centered in a story that offered them the warm, fuzzy, holiday cheery conclusion we deserve. But I miscalculated because that's precisely where Happiest Season struggles. In its attempt to pour itself into the container of the classic heterosexual romantic comedy, Beat for Traumatic Beat. The starkest holdover comes in the way the movie weaponizes the public humiliation trope, a fundamental element of the traditional rom-com, to an almost alarming degree. You've seen it before in My Best Friend's Wedding when Julianne is loudly serenaded at the family brunch, or in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days when Andy plays the role of the clingy girlfriend to cringeworthy levels, or in Harry Met Sally when Sally loudly imitates an orgasm at Katz's diner. Our leading lady is expected to be put through the gauntlet of deeply embarrassing tasks in exchange for winning the heart of her love in the end. In fact, it's framed as a small but hilarious price to pay for the ultimate prize of lifelong partnered bliss. But that trope, like so much else about the form, must be reconsidered when applied to queer people. For so many of us, the act of being turned into an object of ridicule, even for a moment, is deeply rooted in trauma and that ridicule coming at the hands of a loved one who is unable or unwilling to place your happiness above their own is all too familiar. When Abby is accused of shoplifting or left to watch Harper deny their relationship in front of everyone Harper loves, it lacks the same type of comedic relief. 
When queer people have been told time and time again that we're unworthy of love and care, these scenes of humor or temporary heartbreak can't be easily dismissed as a hurdle in pursuit of a kiss in the rain that sets one's universe to right. They have to be handled with much more care or, better yet, upended completely. So I will frame this by saying I am not a queer person. So all I have to go by is reading the reactions of the queer community to this movie for my kind of frame of reference for that. Um, but reading that was really illuminating for me and helped me kind of frame the movie in like frame it in a reaction from not my own perspective, I guess. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I'm also not queer, um, that, I mean, I can definitely, you know, that it's a good point, I don't, you know, I think that, um, what I hope, I guess where I go from that is, like, I hope that this film is, is a stepping stone, um, you know, rather than an end point, um, I guess is, yeah, is what I would say to that. Yeah, I watched this movie with a friend of mine who is queer, who really did not like it. And one of the things that she and I both agree on for sure is that wouldn't it be nice if we had 12 of these movies to talk about so that one isn't carrying, like, every hope that we have for the genre. Mm -hmm. But um, I also, I also just did think it was interesting because I think that there is sort of a predominant point of view that says, you know, why can't we just make more rom-coms with queer or diverse casts? Like, I, I think it is a good point that when you queer or, like when you queer a story or um, put in characters, like when your characters are not white, that the the same story structure that we're used to seeing does not always, like it doesn't read the same when you make those changes and that it might be prudent to consider changing the the. Changing the bones that we're used to. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that was just something that I wanted to kind of touch on um, because I am a straight woman watching this movie and I thought it was important to at least acknowledge that, like, this is what the this is what members of the queer community have said about it. Obviously, that is not a universal. The queer community is not a monolith. Um, the po a podcast that I listened to that I like quite a lot called Who Shot Ya um, had a, a guest on. One of the hosts is a gay man who loves Christmas movies. He's very, he's lovely. Um, but he and their guest both really loved it. So again, not not trying to say that this was the only reaction. I'm putting my foot in my mouth at this point. I just wanted to kind of put that criticism out there because I think it's important to think about yeah. as we watch movies that are about people who are not like us. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> any other thoughts about Happiest Season? Uh, just give me my Jane movie. That was really my main takeaway. Like, I would watch. Yeah, I would watch a full TV series about the adventures of Jane and John. Oh yeah. Like, make a mini series out of her book tour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. Would we recommend this movie? Um. Yeah, I think it. You know, with some of the caveats you described, I. I feel like for all I got frustrated at characters, I I also had a lot of laughs. And um yeah. How about you? I would. Um like I said, I I felt sort of I felt pretty negative about it immediately after I watched it, but after I had a chance to sit with it for a little bit, I'm actually thinking about watching it again now that I know kind of how everything falls out. Mm-hmm. Um because I frequently spend movies like this waiting for the bad thing to happen Mm. which makes it very hard to just like relax and enjoy the movie (laughs) um and now that i i know where the bad things happen i think i would enjoy it more that makes sense Uh, but yeah i definitely um what do we recommend our listeners uh, enjoy either in partnership or as an alternative to this. Yeah, I, so I am going, okay, so backing up a couple steps, um, I just really want an excuse to recommend a group of Christmas romance novellas that I just read that I found very fun. So we are, yeah. we are hanging on the lightest of threads of connection of That's just, chill. I'm into it. Thank you. Of just, (laughs) this is a great trio of novellas um, that are all about Christmas. It features um, my favorite, Courtney Milan. Um, So I'm going to recommend if you just like Christmas romance things, please go read The Heart of Christmas, an anthology um, that has three. Romance novellas, um, one by Mary Ballou, one by Nicola Kornick, and one by Courtney Milan. Um, I recently learned through listening to the Faded Mates podcast, which is a a romance specific podcast, that the the holiday historical holiday romance novella collection is like a thing. Um, so this is actually like carrying on a tradition that was started in the nineties. By like Jude Devereaux and and Judith McNaught and stuff. Anyway, these novel or these novellas, they have a really wide range of tone. Um, one, the Mary Ballou one, is a little more serious, a little more, um, yeah, just a little more serious. Um, the one, um, by Nicola Cornick is a is a little more lighthearted. Um, and then the one by Courtney Milan, I really appreciate because it's like all about class and the and the main characters um are both poor um so it's got a lot about that um and they all have to do with christmas so there we go there's my very shoehorned recommendation um the heart of christmas and anthology (laughs) okay except that i am also bringing a christmas anthology (laughs) (laughs) uh so mine is ya and it is a it is 12 different so it's called my true love gave to me 12 holiday stories 
edited by Stephanie Perkins, oh. uh, includes such authors as Holly Black, Allie Carter, Gail Foreman, Jenny Hahn, David Levithan, Stephanie Perkins, Rainbow Rowell, Lainey Taylor, all of your favorites. There is something for everyone in here. Um, there are queer stories and POC stories and uh, vanilla stories. It's something, truly something for everyone, uh, spanning the range of winter holidays, including Christmas, Hanukkah, the solstice, and New Year's Eve. Um, it filled all of my, like, all of my holiday literature desires. Um, <laughs> and I feel like right now we all need a good dose of cheer, whether that is holiday or um, just warm fuzzies, whether or not you celebrate Christmas. Um, and this book delivers in spades. Ah, thank you for reminding me of that book. I don't know why I have never read it. I legitimately have no reason that I have not read it. Um. It's so fun. I use it as like, I'll, I'll read like a story a night as just like a, I want to feel happy before I fall asleep. <laughs> um, this is not my official recommendation, but just a reminder that one of the movies that we reviewed last year, um, Let It Snow, started life as a collection of three YA novellas all happening around Christmas time. Um, John Green, Maureen Johnson... And oh, who's the third author? Lauren Miracle. Okay. So another another holiday short for <laughs> you. We we are officially a pro holiday anthology podcast. Oh my god, yes. I'm pro holiday <laughs> always. We decorated our tree today. I tried to take Christmas photos of my guinea pigs. They Aww. did not enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, when we're done, I'm going to have you give me your address so that I can oh, okay. send you and Pete our holiday card, Aww. which is going to be entirely guinea pig pictures. Excellent. So next episode, we are continuing our Christmas holiday theme because that's where we're at yep. this year. And honestly, streaming services are dishing it up. I love it. I uh, I truly appreciate it. Yes. We will be discussing the Netflix miniseries Dash and Lily based on the David Levithan, Rachel Cohn collaboration, Dash and Lily's Book of Dares. Um, it is eight episodes of about 25 minutes apiece. So we will be discussing the show as a whole. This is your spoiler warning up front. So... If you do not want to be spoiled for any episodes of the show, make sure you watch it before you listen to our next episode. In the meantime, if this is not enough uh, media and literature millennial discussion for you, you should check out Did You Do Your Homework, my other podcast that releases on the same feed as this one that I do in partnership with Marin's husband, Pete. Our last episode was about non-Western genre fiction, and our next episode is about something that I don't remember what it is. <laughs> oh, oh, media that media created 
under the like auspices of the pandemic. So media oh. that would not exist if the pandemic had not happened. Um, you can find us on social media at all the places at DYDYH podcast. Um, and you can find me personally on social media at magical Martha, including a newsletter that I write tinyletter.com backslash magical Martha. Uh, the last series of issues that I wrote were all about my 100 scariest movie moments from 2010 until now. Um, my next slate of issues will probably be on uh, all the books I read this year because we are coming up on year end list time, which mm. is my favorite time. I love a good year's end list. <laughs> uh, Marin, where can people find you? Yeah, um, people can find me on Twitter at a underscore star underscore danced, um, where I tweet a lot about romance novels. In fact, that's since uh, Nora Roberts was trending this week, I think that's the only thing I've been tweeting about lately. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if that interests you, feel free to give me a follow. I think that that is everything. And if not, I'm sure that Pete will put it in in post uh, when he edits this episode, as he does for all of our episodes. Thanks, Pete. Thank you all for listening. We will see you in a couple of weeks. And just remember that we love ya. Woo, we did it! That was fun. Yeah.